Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A new report on one of the biggest health catastrophes of our time. The lead starts right now. The origins of COVID revealed in an updated U.S. intelligence report. The virus leaked from a lab in Wuhan, China. But how confident is the department in its own findings? And in East Palestine, Ohio, a new technique to track potentially contaminated water from that toxic train wreck and growing concern in other cities, taking in truckloads of contaminated soil. Plus, brand new images today after a string of tornadoes uprooted lives in Oklahoma. CNN is on the scene. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start in our health lead and the new groundbreaking assertion from the U.S. Energy Department that the COVID-19 pandemic likely began from a lab leak in Wuhan, China. This all comes after the Energy Department updated its 2021 report with this claim, saying it made the new conclusion based on new evidence coming to light. Two sources telling CNN the department is issuing the report with, quote, low confidence. That's a term That doesn't mean that they don't believe their own conclusion. It means that the evidence as of now is only circumstantial. This new assertion reveals that the U.S. intelligence community is more divided than ever on how the pandemic began. Four other agencies in the U.S. government say the outbreak likely began after the virus naturally jumped from animals to humans. On the other hand, the FBI agrees with the Energy Department's conclusion that it was a lab leak. And the FBI's confidence level in their conclusions is moderate. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan weighed in with CNN's Dana Bash. Some elements of the intelligence community have reached conclusions on one side, some on the other. A number of them have said they just don't have enough information to be sure. Right now, there is not a definitive answer that has emerged from the intelligence community on this question. This update comes more than three years after the start of the, ep- of the pandemic. At this point, almost three years ago next week, We were all watching the Grand Princess cruise ship slowly making its way to Oakland, California, with more than 100 confirmed cases of individuals with COVID on board. And now more than three years later, and more than one million American lives lost to the virus, the U.S. still seems stumped by how the pandemic even began. Our coverage today starts with CNN's David Culver, who spent much of the pandemic in China for us, and CNN's Pamela Brown. And David, you've dug into this report. What does it say? I wish, Jake, I could tell you that it gives that definitive anchor answer because, you know, we were positioned ourselves, as you know, three years ago in Wuhan, left just before the lockdown, and very curious how all this began. And yet what it does is it seems to create more really uh, confusion, it seems, for some who are looking on to this, especially when you consider that there is no unanimous decision amongst all the intel community to determine how exactly it began. If anything, it may actually even feed into the Chinese narrative. And that's been one to muddy the waters, to deflect blame, to sow doubt into the origins of COVID-19. All in all, though, it is interesting because the Energy Department and those who are uh, sourcing this to us tell us that it's new intel in particular that suggests the origins are from a lab, 
We don't get the details, though, as to what that new intel is and how that might set the whole narrative apart, Jake. And Pamela, you're getting brand new reporting on how Congress is handling this. How is this playing out on Capitol Hill? Well, in many ways, no surprise here, Jake, that Republicans on Capitol Hill are seizing on this um, new reporting. In fact, we're just getting these letters here, three letters sent out just today um, from Chairman Comer and Winstrup. Comer, of course, of the Oversight Committee, Winstrup of the Select Subcommittee on Coronavirus Pandemic. They are sending letters to three agencies in particular, the State Department, as well as the Department of Energy and the FBI. That is notable because, of course, two of those agencies um, are the ones who do believe, who have concluded, DOE with low confidence, uh, that the leak came from a lab. But they are sending these letters today asking for more information. There's 12 specific requests for information, including any communications between um, employees of these agencies and employees of the CDC in Wuhan and the Institute of Virology. So again, um, nothing conclusive here, but this is just fueling the fire on Capitol Hill and, and getting more answers. And I just learned from a Republican aide, Jake, that the first live hearing from the select subcommittee on COVID will be on March 8th. And David, you've been to Wuhan specifically three times since January 2020. In 2021, you did an in-depth analysis on the lab. What, What did you learn? Well, it's interesting what Pamela pointed out there. The two labs in particular that have been in focus here, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that's a BSL-4 lab, that's Biosafety Level 4. It's about 30 minutes from the Huanan Seafood Market, Jake, which was that first amplification point, if you will. That's where most of the early cases were linked to. And that's where a lot of those who first got sick said that they had been gathering. And so the thought was that if it was a natural origins, that means it jumped from animals to humans, that that's where it happened. But given the circumstantial evidence here pointing towards the lab leak theory, about a 30 minute drive is the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That's one consideration. But Jake, go two blocks from the Huanan Seafood Market and that's where the Wuhan CDC is located. So that in of itself is very suspect. And at the Wuhan CDC, we know as a BSL-2, so a bit lower level in how they did their research, they still looked into bats and coronaviruses. I do want to let you read a little bit of what the Chinese had to say about this, by the way. Uh, The foreign ministry, of course, coming out quite strong. And they, from the podium today, said China has always actively supported and participated in global science-based origin tracing. Relevant parties should stop stir-frying the argument of laboratory leak, stop vilifying China, and stop politicizing the issue. They also went on to say, Jake, that the WHO concluded in their field team visit that it was highly unlikely that a lab leak happened. But we should also point out the WHO asked for a second visit, and China said no. Yeah. Stir-frying the argument. Interesting language from the Chinese government. David Culver, Pamela Brown, thanks so much. With me to discuss is Dr. Tom Frieden. He's the former director of the CDC. Tom, the, the, the new uh, U.S. Energy Depor- Department report was asserted with low confidence, meaning it's only ba- based on circumstantial evidence. It goes against the findings of four other U.S. intelligence agencies, although it does uh, also go along with uh, the FBI conclusion. What do you say right now to Americans who, who don't know what to believe? Jake, there's a bottom line here, which is that neither lab leak nor spillover, i.e. an animal origin, can be ruled out. We don't have definitive information. And I think that is an absolute truth here. We don't know. But what we do know is that both lab leak and animal spillover are continued risks from countries around the world. And I wish that some of the energy going into investigating, which should be done, 
but I wish even more energy would be spent reducing the risk that there will be future lab leaks or future animal spillover events. Because, Jake, we know that both things have happened. There have been spillovers in SARS-1, in Ebola, in other deadly diseases. There have been lab lab leaks in the United Kingdom with smallpox, in uh, probably in Eastern Europe with an influenza virus in the 1970s, uh, in China with SARS-1. So there have been lab leaks and we need to strengthen the oversight of laboratories to reduce that risk all over the world. And there have been spillover events and we need to reduce the risk of that happening. The U.S. Energy Department updated its report based on new intelligence. Is it possible that the four other agencies who reported that the pandemic likely began from animal to human transmission might also change their assessment if if they get their hands on that new intelligence? Very hard to know. We don't know what that intelligence is. We know that they've had this assessment as low level. Uh, You can make a pretty strong argument for either scenario, but without more evidence, we don't have proof of what happened. We do have proof that labs all over the world need to be safer and the animal-human interface where people encroach on nature and may get infected with new and virulent organisms, we need to do better at increasing that barrier to keep us all safer. The World Health Organization report from last year also left uh, all possible explanations for the outbreak of the pandemic on the table. The WHO is also calling on China to cooperate with its investigation. Do you think we're ever going to get to the bottom of this if the Chinese government continues to refuse to cooperate? I think it's very challenging, uh, even with full cooperation, to get a definitive answer. What we do know definitively is that labs need to be safer and we need to reduce the risk that an animal pathogen will pass to people and spread all over the world. So, yes, I hope we will get a definitive answer. Uh, Whether or not we do, the actual implications are the same with either answer. We need better laboratory safety and we need better ways to protect the world from animal spillover events. And, and uh, I'm sure you're concerned about the, the science behind this continually wrapped up in a political fight, whether it is to push the lab leak theory or to squelch discussion of the lab leak theory. There's been so much politics in this. Yeah, and the, the bottom line is that we can't rule out either. Based on all of the information that's in the public domain now, You can make a circumstantial argument that sounds like the lab leak may be plausible, and you can make a strong argument based on the virology that an animal origin is much more likely. Uh, There are also, Jake, actually some uh, intermediate associated explanations where perhaps something emerged in animals and there was some laboratory involvement in some way, whether it was collecting specimens or infections of laboratory workers. But there's no evidence that I've seen in the public domain that is any type of a smoking gun for a lab leak. Uh, And on the other hand, we have seen animal spillover events with SARS-1 and many other organisms. Nature is a pretty good uh, bioterrorist. And so nature is a good way of creating dangerous organisms. And whether those are spread through laboratory error or accident or through people encroaching on animal environments that have not been encroached on before and getting infected, we need to be safer. 20 million lives, more than $10 trillion in economic losses from this pandemic. The next one could be as bad or even worse. So we need to do much better keeping countries safe. Dr. Tom Frieden, thank you so much. Coming up, the vastly different plans coming from Republicans 
and Democrats to investigate the Ohio train derailment. Plus, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis gets his way, the new law that gives him the keys to the Magic Kingdom. Stay with us. International lead a new warning in the wake of the Ohio train disaster. In a letter today, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says not one of the seven major rail companies in the U.S. participates in the confidential close call reporting system. That program would allow workers to voluntarily report hazards that could lead to a derailment if no rail CEOs respond with plans to participate by the end of the week. Buttigieg says that he will publicly call them out. His warning comes as crews in East Palestine, Ohio, restart hauling away contaminated soil and liquid. But as CNN's Miguel Marquez reports for us now, leaders in other parts of the country are concerned about where that toxic material is going. Federal teams going door to door in East Palestine conducting health surveys. Over a dozen wells being drilled around the site of the spill to track where chemicals under groundwater may be moving. Only 11 train cars now remain at the crash site, those part of a federal investigation. Hundreds of air tests in homes and air monitors in town show no signs of contamination. City and private wells being continually tested. Also, so far, no sign of contamination. You should have water, soil, and home testing before you move back in. Again, always paid for by Norfolk Southern. Keep your receipts. So um, it's up to each individual uh, renter or homeowner what to do there, um, but abundance of caution is that they, they make the decision themselves. But the waste and getting rid of it, providing one of the more difficult hurdles so far. Soil and water left over from the toxic derailment now being shipped to two EPA-approved facilities in Ohio. Moving forward, waste disposal plans, including disposal location and transportation routes for contaminated waste, would be subject to EPA review and approval. The solid waste from the train derailment will be incinerated at an approved company in East Liverpool, Ohio, about 20 miles south of East Palestine. We have a two-year-old daughter, and uh, of course that's a concern. But again, you know, I, I think this is a, a state-of-the-art facility that can handle this type of waste. The waste from the derailment now going to two facilities in Ohio, East Liverpool and Vickery after Norfolk Southern's plan to ship the waste to Texas and Michigan was rejected by the EPA, state politicians, and residents. We don't want this type of disposal in our community. We think that there's a better way to dispose of this. Ohio's governor says the Texas facility will dispose of a half billion gallons of liquid waste that's already there, and the Michigan facility will dispose of 15 truckloads of contaminated soil. Five truckloads were returned to East Palestine. Miguel Marquez, CNN. New York. And our thanks to Miguel Marquez for that report. Uh, The Ohio train derailment has both Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill demanding answers, but they are taking completely different approaches when it comes to getting those answers. A source says that Senate Democrats want to question the train operator, Norfolk Southern. House Republicans, on the other hand, want to focus on the Biden administration. Let's go to CNN's 
Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Uh, Manu, the entire situation will likely set up some contentious debates in the weeks to come. Yeah, no question about it. In fact, I just spoke with the chairman, chairwoman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. That is one of the committees, the three committees in the House that is investigating this issue. She told me that the Environmental Protection Agency has agreed to let a witness testify before the subcommittee on her panel on March 28th about this issue, about the Ohio train derailment. She said it's still not certain whether the administrator, Michael Regan, will be the one testifying or if it will be somebody else. Now, two other House committees also pushing ahead the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, as well as the House Oversight Committee. And that chairman of the Oversight Committee, James Comer, told me leaving as he left the Speaker's office this afternoon, he too is pressing for answers from Pete Buttigieg. He has sent a letter asking for responses within the next two weeks. And whether they get those responses remain to be seen. And whether Buttigieg's call to testify in public also remains a question. Now, this does come as Democrats in the Senate offering a different approach. Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, is calling on the CEO of Norfolk Southern, uh, Alan Shaw, to testify before the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. That committee does have subpoena power. It's uncertain if they will get to that point. But it does plan to have a hearing in March on this issue. So, Jake, just a lot of questions members of Congress have about all these issues as they weigh whether there needs to be any sort of legislative response, whether there need to be any federal funds to provide it to this community devastated by this disaster. But at the moment, asking for answers, both from the train administrator and the Biden administration itself about what happened here and to ensure something like this doesn't happen again. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Coming up next, the splashy new video from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis that gives the clearest hint yet of his likely plans for 2024. Stay with us. In our politics lead this week, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis takes a giant step toward a 2024 presidential run. His new book, The Courage to be Free, hits shelves tomorrow as several of the GOP's biggest donors are handing his organization's seven-figure checks in preparation for a potential White House bid. CNN's Jeff Zeleny cracked open the book, which provides new insights into how DeSantis may brand himself as an alternative to Donald Trump. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis inching ever closer to a highly anticipated presidential launch with a new campaign-style video. Freedom is worth fighting for. And a new book that serves as a roadmap for a potential 2024 Republican primary. In The Courage to be Free, obtained today by CNN, DeSantis plants his flag as a leading alternative to Donald Trump and pushes back against the former president's often-made assertion that he alone is responsible for the governor's success. I do not think Republican primary voters are sheep who simply follow an endorsement from a politician they like without any individual analysis. But I do believe that a major endorsement can put a candidate on the radar of GOP voters in a way that boosts a good candidate's prospects, DeSantis writes, adding that his debate performance in his 2018 race for governor led to a come-from-behind victory in the GOP primary. As the Republican presidential field takes shape, DeSantis is making an early splash. holding up his Florida record as a blueprint for a national platform, like the Parental Rights and Education Act, which critics have dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill, that led to his feud with the Disney Corporation. Today, the corporate kingdom finally comes to an end. 
there's a new sheriff in town and accountability will be the order of the day. The governor went to Walt Disney World's backyard to sign a law today, effectively punishing the entertainment giant for speaking out against the DeSantis agenda. He uses that fight to bolster his view that big business, a longtime ally of the GOP, has become too woke in his characterization and should be called out by a new class of Republican leaders. Corporate America has become a major protagonist in battles over American politics and culture. The battle lines almost invariably find large, publicly traded corporations lining up behind leftist causes, he writes, adding, old guard corporate republicanism is not up to the task at hand. As Florida governor, he's become a combative figure in the culture wars, for which he offers no apologies. It's always be on offense. Because if you're not on offense, then you're basically a sitting duck and you let these people come and just take pot sacks at you all the time. Now, the governor is not planning a formal announcement until May at the earliest, I am told. That is at the end of the Florida legislative session when he hopes to have even more new laws that he can sell out there on the campaign trail. But, Jake, one thing is clear. He's launching his book tour uh, tomorrow of this book here, Courage to Be Free, and he's trying to use it as his calling card to tell Republican donors, party officials, and others that he can be a fighter who is more electable. Of course, this is just the very beginning rounds of a a long brewing battle between him and the former president sure to play out over the course of this year. Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. With us now, Ayesha Roscoe, host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday. Also with us, CNN political analyst Sungman Kim, a White House report, the White House reporter for the Associated Press. Ayesha, um, Governor DeSantis in his book uh, complains that corporate America is lining up behind leftist causes and that old guard corporate republicanism is not up to the task at hand. Uh, we saw how he handled Disney in Florida, though, of course, it's a good question as to why Disney had that special, you know, corporate town to begin with. But regardless, do you think this will translate to a national audience? I mean, I think to a certain extent, I mean, it's a way to get headlines. It's a way to get attention. And certainly if you're trying to appeal to conservatives who feel like they are in some ways losing the culture wars because they feel like the culture is leaving them behind and these big companies are coming out for things that they don't believe in. Yeah, it's a way to 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 get yourself to show that I'm fighting for you. Now, I think the, the, the issue for Ron DeSantis is that he has he clearly is, you know, gunning to be the <clears throat> be president. He's clearly gunning to do this. But we don't know how he's going to be on that national stage. And that's what I want to see. It's like everyone has a plan until they get hit. Isn't that the boxing thing? Like, I just want to see, like, how is he going to be when he's really out there and he's really taking hits from Donald Trump and others? Um, And how is he going to stand up to it? Yeah, the immortal words of Mike Tyson, I believe you quoted there. Um, Sungman, some conservatives, uh, including former Vice President Pence, uh, say that interfering in, in businesses the way that DeSantis does Uh, goes too far. I mean, that is a different version of republicanism that we that government should be completely hands off. Uh, But what DeSantis is doing is not that it's a different brand. 
Right, certainly so. And I think what's been, what, it's, it's this really fascinating emerging dividing line in the GOP primary of people who are either running for president or have talked about potentially running for the Republican nomination. We know the Republican Party is this classic uh, pro-business, limited government party that's been a fundamental principle of the party for decades. And Ron DeSantis is really going against that grain, considering his actions on Disney, considering his, uh, his uh, attacks on so-called woke businesses. You know, you talked about former Vice President Pence saying it goes too far. Uh, the New Hampshire governor, Chris Sununu, has also criticized those actions. So it'll be really fascinating to see in this Republican Party which view of business, which view of government's role in business and, you know, regulating speech and even punishing speech by, uh, according to DeSantis's critics, which view of that uh, wins out among Republican primary voters. And Aisha, I'm sure the governor DeSantis did not think that he was going to get a positive book review in the New York Times. But be that as it may, uh, there is a review today. It says, quote, for the most part, the courage to be free, DeSantis's book, is courageously free of anything that resembles charisma or discernible sense of humor. While his first book was weird and esoteric enough to have obviously been written by a human, this one reads like a politician's memoir churned out by chat GPT. Now, on one, on one hand, I have to say that actually reminds me of the difference between Barack Obama's first book, uh, Dreams for My Father, and his second book, which he wrote as a senator when he was getting ready uh, to run for president, which was just really honestly full of pablum. Uh, but by the same token, it's also a description of somebody who is very un-Trump-like. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's you know, Ron DeSantis's main selling point is that I am not Trump. You know, I can do the things that, you know, Trump talks about but I can be more polished. I won't just run off and, you know, get into fights with, you know, you know, uh, superstars or things like, you know, just random things. I will be more focused. That is his, that is what he is selling. Um, the question is whether he can sell that to the base in a way that they feel fired up about it. And they feel like he has the charisma, the whole, you know, the old thing about, do you want to have a beer with Ron DeSantis? I mean, he's going to have to pass that test as well. Sungman, a CNN K-file review of DeSantis's past comments um, found that as a congressman, he was very hawkish when it came to arming Ukraine to fight Russia. Um, but this week, obviously, he questioned U.S. involvement uh, in the conflict. Um, do you think he's just reading where the voters are? I think you've certainly uh, seen a shift in many or in some of his policy positions from when he was Congressman Ron DeSantis to now governor and potential presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. You know, going back to that New York Times review and mentioned that in DeSantis's 2011 book, he preached about the virtues of so-called limited government, which isn't necessarily what we're seeing right now with his battle against Disney. Obviously, with K-Files reporting, you saw that he was really hawkish, called for arming Ukraine uh, at the, around the time of uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea, certainly uh, shifting with where the primary voters have been for the last several years. Aisha Roscoe and Sungman Kim, thanks to both of you. Comedian Bill Maher's predictions in past election cycles have been spot on. I went to Los Angeles to get his take on the race for 2024. He's no stranger to politics or to controversy as the host of HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. Uh, you can hear what influenced his own career and his view on the state of comedy in the, in the land of wokeness, in his view. You can see the conversation on CNN primetime tomorrow night at 9 o'clock Eastern, only here on CNN. Next, new fallout for Dilbert comic strip creator Scott Adams. Not only are 
hundreds of newspapers dropping his strip and his syndicate syndicate dropping relationship with him. Now another hit after that rant deemed racist on YouTube. Stay with us. And our pop culture lead, Dilbert, has been fired. The newspaper comic has been around for more than three decades. It spawned multiple best-selling books. It appeared in thousands of newspapers at its height with its take on the frustrations of cubicle work life. But today, the syndicate that distributed Dilbert cut all ties with its author, Scott Adams, for blatantly racist remarks. Adams, on his YouTube show, referenced a poll by Rasmussen. That's a pro-Trump media company whose polls do not meet CNN standards. The poll suggested that 53% of black Americans indicated they agree with the statement, it's okay to be white, leaving the other 47% to say they disagree or they aren't sure. We should note here the significance of that statement, it's okay to be white. The Anti-Defamation League says that phrase has a long history in the white supremacist movement. So why Rasmussen was polling on it is anyone's guess. But here is what, some of what Adam said. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. The best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. A fairly racist statement, as blatant as it gets. CNN's Oliver Darcy watching all of this. You know, Oliver Adams, who we should note, came on the lead in the early Trump era a few times. He's been trending more and more hard right for years now into some really bigoted terrain. But I guess this apparently crossed the line into self-immolation. That's certainly correct, Jake. I mean, if you watch this live stream, I mean, you just played some of the comments. They're frankly very shocking comments. It seems to be that he is promoting, effectively promoting uh, segregation, uh, saying that uh, white people should not be helping black people. Um, They should be staying away from them and really, uh, really defending these comments in later uh, broadcasts that that I've watched. Now, he's saying he was being hyperbolic and wanting to start a conversation about race. Um, But obviously making comments like that's no way to start this conversation. He's also, Jake, positioning himself as really a free speech martyr here. But, um, you know, consequences do follow free speech. He has the right, of course, to say whatever he wants. Um, These uh, newspapers and other businesses have a have a right to uh, sever ties with them. Yeah, he wants us to make this cancel culture, but this is this is consequence culture, really. Now, newspapers across the country were pulling Dilbert even before uh, the syndicate, the distribution company, cut ties mm-hmm. with Adams today. This is going to be potentially a huge financial blow. I, I can imagine that his finances aren't going to look so great after this, at least his income stream, because uh, like you said, all the newspapers have really effectively canceled the Dilbert comic strip. And it's, it's extended beyond that at this point. Um, his publisher, the publisher of a forthcoming book that he was set to release in September, they've now said they're no longer going to publish that book. He uh, tweeted earlier today that his book agent had canceled on him. So he's going to have some uh, professional repercussions uh, for sure as a result of these shocking and racist comments. Um, now, whether he's able to leverage the attention he's receiving uh, to start something separate, you know, that, that remains to be seen. But in terms of his previous business model, that's all but been obliterated, Jake. Yeah. I mean, he's also, in addition to, to white uh, um, segregation, he's also clearly preaching white supremacy. Um, but now Elon Musk is weighing in on Scott Adams' side of this? That's, you know, if the story couldn't get any crazier, it, it just did. I guess it's not 
too crazy that Elon Musk would say something, uh, you know, that would draw controversy, but he was effectively defending or rushing to Scott's defense after these shocking comments. He said that the media is racist uh, in, in one tweet, and then he went on to elaborate on that tweet, not, not really doing himself any favors. Now he's saying that he doesn't always agree with what Adams does, um, but that he finds the Dilbert cartoon uh, funny, Jake. Yeah, nobody's talking about the Dilbert cartoon. <laughs> We're talking about what Scott said on the YouTube. Oliver Darcy, thanks so much. And our world lead, an Israeli-American citizen, was killed today in the West Bank. This follows an eruption of violence over the weekend when rare peace talks between Israeli and Palestinian officials in Jordan were overshadowed by attacks and riots back home, sparked by the shooting of two Israeli brothers near a Palestinian town. Israeli officials quickly dubbed that a terrorist attack, and hours later, Riots broke out, uh, almost a pogrom, really. Israeli settlers throwing rocks and setting houses in Palestinian neighborhoods ablaze. It was shocking and horrifying. At least one Palestinian was shot and killed. CNN's Hadass Gold is in Jerusalem with more on what Israeli officials call revenge attacks. Benjamin Netanyahu is the most experienced prime minister in Israeli history. But he's facing unprecedented, multifaceted battles on nearly every front. Tensions and violence between Israelis and Palestinians at a 20-year high. On Sunday, the occupied West Bank burned. Two Israeli brothers shot point-blank, killed while sitting in traffic in what officials say was a terrorist attack. Then, in what's been deemed revenge attacks by Israeli settlers, a Palestinian man shot and killed. Houses and cars burned. Just hours after Israeli and Palestinian officials met in a summit in Jordan meant to calm tensions. A joint communique pledging to take steps to restore calm, seeking a just and lasting peace. (laughs) Meanwhile, Netanyahu's far right-wing coalition partners seemingly dismissing the summit in Jordan. The message is coming out. Netanyahu biographer Anshul Pfeffer says much of the controversy around Netanyahu is thanks to these governing partners. I think... This is the least Netanyahu has ever been in control as a prime minister. He's not, basic, he's not running his government. His government is being run by the coalition partners who have him over a barrel. Meanwhile, for eight weeks in a row, tens of thousands of Israelis have been taking to the streets to protest against Netanyahu's planned massive judicial reforms. The most sweeping of these changes would give the Israeli parliament power to overturn Supreme Court decisions. Many critics arguing it's part of a ploy to help Netanyahu out of his ongoing corruption trial, something he denies. And Netanyahu faces increasing international pressure from allies, notably the United States, which has criticized not only settlement expansion and some of Israel's actions in the occupied West Bank, but also a rare presidential incursion into internal Israeli politics. President Biden urging a consensus be reached on the judicial reforms. We've never had this kind of differences between Jerusalem and Washington. It's always been over the Palestinian issue. It's been over the Iran issue. It's never been about the way the Israeli government is, is legislating on, on, on a democratic agenda. Looming ahead in the calendar, the highly sensitive period of overlapping Muslim and Jewish holidays of Ramadan and Passover, threatening to set Jerusalem aflame as well. Yet another battlefront for Netanyahu, Israel's ultimate survivor for now. And Jake, what's really interesting about those settler rampages is that the Israeli military is actually calling them acts of terror. 
sort of rare moment agreement with Palestinian officials. We know that at least eight people have been arrested in connection to those attacks. Meanwhile, the Israeli military sending extra battalions into the West Bank to try and catch the attackers in those two attacks on the Israelis, as well as they say, try to at least keep the two sides separated between uh, Israeli settlers and Palestinians. Jake. All right, Hadass Gold in Jerusalem for us. Thank you for that report. CNN is also on the ground in Norman, Oklahoma, where a string of tornadoes left a trail of destruction. What residents told our teams was the scariest part of this disaster. That's next. In the internationally dangerous winter weather is bringing destruction to the central U.S. Oklahoma is seen to at least seven tornadoes starting on Sunday. You can see how this neighborhood in Norman was demolished. Tornadoes flipped cars, leaving a mangled mess for rescue crews to search among the debris. In the daylight, the scope of the damage comes into focus with this neighborhood now almost entirely gone. CNN's Ed Lavendera is in Oklahoma for us right now. And Ed, describe the scene around you and how the community is trying to start to attempt to recover. Well, it's been a day of cleanup for residents here in this neighborhood in Norman, Oklahoma, where the National Weather Service says uh, it was an EF2 uh, tornado that ripped through this particular area. The damage is uh, rather immense, the areas that were hit in this neighborhood. And the debris, you know, the, the sites are rather stunning. If you look high in the tree, about 30 feet up there, see a giant piece of plywood that was ripped off of someone's rooftop and ended up in that tree. Here on the ground, uh, the residents are continuing the cleanup, and as you walk around, you can really uh, get a sense of the magnitude of the force of this storm. Remember, Jake, this was a line of storms that started in the Texas panhandle and started blowing intensely across the state over several hours. There were wind gusts in the Texas panhandle in a little town called Memphis, Texas, that recorded winds of 114 miles per hour. That is strong hurricane level type wind. So that really is a, a dramatic sight to see. And many people, I thought there were going to be many more people without power, but uh, they have been uh, very quick to restore power in many parts of the state here today. No one was home here, Jake, but the windows, everything blown out. We've seen uh, a house just across the street where you saw um, refrigerator and all the uh, uh, contents of the building blown out of the back of, of a building, uh, of, of a home there. Spoke with one woman who was sweeping up her driveway. She's a 10th grade geometry teacher at a high school in Oklahoma City. She was trying to clear out her, dri her driveway so she could get to her car. She wants to return to class tomorrow. But she described being inside uh, her home when the storm hit. And there were two things that really uh, struck her by the storm. Just how quickly it approached, how quickly uh, it blew through her neighborhood, causing this extensive kind of damage. And the other thing was just how, how, how much shaking the house did. So she told us, she's like, I'm fine physically, but I'm still shaking from experiencing this tornado. Jake? All right, Ed Lavendera in Norman, Oklahoma. Thank you. CNN is also in Ukraine. The new activity there, not seen in weeks, plus the fight for land in one region coming down to a block-by-block -block battle. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the fastest-growing metro area in America is running out of water and fast. And the proposal to quench the area's thirst has six other states up in arms. Plus, a new U.S. intelligence report now says the COVID pandemic likely came from a lab leak in Wuhan, China, not from a wet market. A member of the new House Committee on the Chinese Communist Party joins me to discuss 
And leading this hour, unusually warm temperatures are impacting the war in Ukraine. Roads near the front lines around the city of Bakhmut are almost impassable due to flooding and thick mud. Ukrainian military officials say the mud is slowing down the Russian assault, and for the first time in weeks, Russian drones attacked parts of Ukraine, killing at least two people. Let's get right to CNN's Melissa Bell in Kyiv. Melissa, Russia launched a fresh wave of drone attacks today, but Ukraine says they were able to shoot down a majority of those drones over Kyiv, but southwest of Kyiv, it was a different story. Tell us more. That's right, Siri. That's right, Jake. It was a case of the notorious Russian double tap, a series of those uh, Iranian-made Shahid kamikaze drones that were launched overnight and into this morning. One landed in an area uh, uh, that is a few hours southwest of here. Firefighters went on the scene uh, to try and see what the damage had been. Two sadly then lost their lives when a second drone hit. Three people injured. But you're quite right, more broadly, that onslaught of drones that we saw overnight, two waves that meant that the air raid sirens here in Moscow sounded for about five and a half hours. Uh, essentially, there were 14, say, Ukrainian authorities that were launched of those, 11 taken down, including nine biodefense systems here in Kivjik. And Melissa, we're seeing uh, new videos from Bakhmut, where Ukrainians are trying to hold on to every inch of territory inside that city. How has that changed the way that each side is fighting the war? Well, it's made it on the Russian side uh, dirtier and more determined on the Ukrainian more desperate, uh, Jake. And that's something that we've been seeing over the course of the last few days as the offensive gains in intensity. And as you say, as those conditions on the ground uh, worsen, those images geolocated by CNN that show the conditions around Bakhmut pretty grim uh, with uh, mud and uh, floods in some areas, making those roads pretty well impossible. What Ukrainian authorities and President Zelensky has said tonight is that things are getting more and more challenging. What we've seen over the course of the day are series of intense attacks in several different parts of the front line. But it is that battle for the town of Bakhmut that gets worse and more intense by the day with Ukrainian officials describing it very much as the epicenter. There have been today hundreds of artillery barrages and rocket strikes by the Russians as they try and encircle the town and specifically the areas of settlements to the west of it and desperate pleas on the part of the Ukrainians once again that they need more weapons. One Ukrainian commander asking once again for those F-16s that Washington has so far said they will not be sending to Ukraine but also pleading desperately for more ammunition and saying look it's pretty simple with every shell that arrives every piece of equipment that we get it is another Ukrainian life that is saved be it military or civilian but it is another it is another life saved and this of course is that battle to hold that town gets more desperate Ukrainians have said look we will defend it as long as we can, but not at any cost. That cost is growing steeper by the day, Jake. All right. But Melissa Bell and Key for us. Thank you so much. As Putin's army blasts through its stockpile, the CIA director, William Burns, says he's, quote, confident that China is considering sending lethal military equipment to Russia. The Kremlin has so far declined to comment, all while the Chinese government attempts to broker peace between Russia and Ukraine, present itself as neutral and repair its frayed ties with Western nations. CNN's Kylie Atwood is at the State Department for us. Kylie, do U.S. officials have any concrete evidence that China has sent this lethal equipment for Russia to use against Ukraine, that they've done it yet? No, they don't. They say that they are still mulling over that decision, but the fact that they are mulling over it, uh, the U.S. officials must have some pretty concrete intelligence to be making statements saying that they are confident that those decisions are being had in Chinese leadership right now. And the concern here, of course, is that 
this in, increased equipment that could be added to Russia to fight this war in Ukraine could prolong the war. That's exactly what U.S. officials don't want. And so what they're doing now is warning China that they know that they're considering it in an effort to deter them from actually going ahead with this decision. Listen to what CIA Director Bill Burns said over the weekend of those warnings. We also don't see that a final decision has been made yet, and we don't see evidence of actual shipments of lethal equipment. Uh, And that's why I think Secretary Blinken and the president have thought it important to make very clear what the consequences of that would be. Now, we also don't know publicly what those consequences exactly will be, Jake, but it's pretty clear that U.S. officials have uh, created some pretty stark warnings in those conversations with Chinese officials. I think it's important to note that the U.S. ambassador to China today, Nick Burns, said that at this moment in time, the U.S. and China relationship is really a challenging one. He said the U.S. is focused on managing the differences in that relationship. All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us. Thanks so much. Today, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made an unannounced trip to Kiev, where Ukraine applauded the United States as a standout in providing financial support to the ravaged country. Secretary Yellen said she expects U.S. sanctions to take a toll on Russia's economy over time. CNN's Fred Pleitkin is in Moscow for us, where emerging cracks among Putin's ranks are apparent right now. Russian Defense Ministry video from the war in Ukraine, showing Moscow's troops on the move, gaining ground, beating back Kiev's forces. But the reality, at least in some cases, seems different. These soldiers say they were mobilized from Irkutsk in Siberia and they're refusing to fight. Due to the current state of affairs, we find ourselves in a desperate position as the commanders do not care about our lives, he says, and later adds, we ask for help, we have nowhere else to turn. The video was published as the Ukrainians say they've decimated Russian forces trying to assault Vuladar in eastern Ukraine. And after a public spat between Yevgeny Prigozhin of the Wagner private military company and the Russian defense ministry over ammo supplies to Wagner mercenaries around Bakhmut. While Prigozhin says the issue has been resolved, he took another swipe at the defense ministry. A big number of former soldiers who are now part of Wagner came here because they were looking for more creative freedom, since everyone understands the army doesn't always enable that. When we asked Prigozhin whether ties with the defense ministry have been restored, a snarky answer. Guys, you're CNN. Enemy spies. Have a conscience. How can I discuss military issues with you, he wrote on his social media channel. Wagner's forces say they've gained ground around Bakhmut this weekend. Russian state media released this drone footage of the utter destruction there, and the Ukrainians claim Wagner's losses are immense. Former Putin advisor Sergei Markov tells me he doesn't believe Prigozhin uses his forces as cannon fodder, because he owns them. They have storming group, but uh, but Prigozhin, according to my information, he tried to preserve their lives because it's these, their lives, his property, and he's a businessman. Their lives are his property? Yes. But while progress is hard to come by for his army, Russian President Vladimir Putin shows no signs of backing down instead proclaiming the Ukraine war to be a conflict with the West. They have one goal, to break up the former Soviet Union and its main part, the Russian Federation. 
For what? To push the remnants around and put them under their direct control. And Jake, today we're hearing more such things from Vladimir Putin. Today is Special Operations Forces Day here in Russia. And Vladimir Putin obviously congratulated his Special Operations Forces. And he told them that, first of all, they're masters of their weapons, but also that they are defending both the Russian people and Russian lands from what he calls Ukrainian neo-Nazis. We expect to hear more from Vladimir Putin tomorrow when he gives a big speech to the FSB, the intelligence service, Jake. All right, Fred Plotkin in Moscow for us. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is Evelyn Farkas. She's executive director at the McCain Institute and former deputy assistant secretary of defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. Uh, Evelyn, first, I want to get your reaction to Fred's reporting in this increasingly public spat between Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, who runs that mercenary force, the Wagner Group, and Putin's defense ministry. Yeah, I mean, I guess this has been going on for a while behind the scenes, but really burst um, to the to the fore more recently. Prigozhin was somebody who seemed to be able to get what he wanted by talking to President Putin, and it seems that now he has to speak to the public and to the cameras. Um, the the defense minister and the head of the armed forces, so Minister Shoigu and General Garasimov, they're quite close and they have closed ranks um, against Prigozhin. And Garasimov, as you may know, was more recently put in charge of this operation. Prigozhin was close to the general, the bloody general from Syria that they brought in for a little while to oversee this this campaign. But they've now put the the Kremlin back in charge, Garasimov back in charge, and Prigozhin doesn't like it. We see Russia relying on these Iranian-made drones in today's attacks. Um, the U.S. believes China is considering sending lethal aid to Russia. And just last week, a top U.S. official said North Korea armed the Wagner army, that private mercenary group Prigozhin is in charge of. What do you make of Putin's reliance on, on weapons from countries like China, Iran, and North Korea? Well, he has no choice because of international sanctions. But the Chinese, it sounds like they may want to test our resolve on this front. And while we know that China and other countries are providing dual-use items to Russia, so things like appliances, uh, which contain some chips that could be retrofitted, so computer chips that could be used for military hardware, it's a much different thing to actually provide the weaponry to Russia. And if, indeed, this is what China is contemplating, it will be pretty revolutionary. It will mean that China is is going to come under then greater sanctions from the United States and its allies around the world. And this could really hurt China's economy. So this move is not a small move for China. And obviously, we all can hope that China doesn't do this. Obviously, we're going to provide more weaponry to Ukraine to try to give them the upper hand. But anything China throws into this conflict will only result in a loss of more lives. The commander in chief of the Ukrainian armed forces said he spoke to General Mark Milley today, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff here in the U.S., and reiterated uh, their desire for F-16 fighter jets. Now, you've said you're hopeful the U.S. will send them, especially to help provide cover for Ukrainian troops on the ground. We've heard the argument from U.S. officials that training will take a while and sending jets could could cause World War Three. What's the real issue here? Well, Jake, I have a piece with um, Air Force General, retired Air Force General Dave Deptula that ran in this this weekend in the Wall Street Journal exactly on this issue. Uh, First of all, as far as I understand, we have been training Ukrainians on F-16s, or at least we know they're trained on fighter aircraft. I believe that they may have already been trained on F-16s just in case. 
the reality is that we are always kind of going slowly and incrementally and the, and unfortunately driven a bit too much by fear of escalation. Vladimir Putin is not going to necessarily use a nuclear weapon if we provide fighter aircraft to the Ukrainians. They already have them. This, of course, would be more capable aircraft and more aircraft in general for the Ukrainians. It will allow them to break through Russian lines. It will give them air cover for their troops on the ground. It will allow them to strike longer distances. And all of this is necessary unless we want to stalemate and, and unless we want to give Russia a chance to fight another day, perhaps with the help of the Chinese. Evelyn Farkas, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Coming up, the new intelligence report raising questions about COVID's origins. Were officials too quick to dismiss the lab leak theory? Plus, after Alec Murdoch's explosive testimony in his own defense, his attorneys just finished laying out their case. We'll have an update from that South Carolina courthouse next. And we're back with our health lead. The U.S. Energy Department updated its 2021 report to say that the COVID-19 pandemic likely began from a lab leak in Wuhan, China. The department saying it made the change in their report after more intelligence came to light. Though two sources are telling CNN it's issuing the report with, quote, low confidence. But that doesn't mean they don't believe the report. That means that the evidence for now remains circumstantial. This goes against four other U.S. agencies that say it's likely the outbreak started after the virus jumped from animals to humans, though the FBI agrees with the Energy Department's conclusion with moderate confidence that it was a lab leak. The National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby weighed in on this debate earlier today. There is not a consensus right now in the U.S. government about exactly how COVID started. Uh, there is just not an intelligence community consensus. The president believes it's really important that we continue that work and that we find out as best we can how it started so that we can better prevent a future pandemic. Joining us now, Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna of California, who is on the select committee on the strategic competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. Congressman, good to see you. What do you make of this new assertion from the Energy Department that the coronavirus pandemic might have leaked from a a Wuhan lab? And what's your best guess as to whether it was a wet market or or a lab leak? Jake, it's a very concerning report. We need transparency. My concern is that China isn't being transparent. I can't speculate on which agency is right other than to say we have to demand much more transparency from China. When the the lab leak theory was first proposed, um, there was some very aggressive pushback uh, from health authorities. Um, Why do you think, uh, I mean, it, it does seem like it's a credible possibility. Who knows what the truth is? But why do you think there was such aggressive pushback? Jake, it was wrong. As you know, I'm a defender of the First Amendment, of free speech, and I think it was wrong to try to censor the folks who were arguing that it was an accidental leak from a lab. At the very least, we know it's a plausible theory if the Department of Energy has put this out. And the Energy Department says it updated its report after new intelligence came to light. Do you have any idea what kind of intelligence uh, or evidence that could be? Jake, I don't know, but one of the things I think on the China Select Committee is to look at all of these agency reports, to look at what we can do to demand more transparency out of China. Is this new evidence, do you think, being shared among intelligence agencies? In in other words, there are four agencies who still say, no, it it was the wet market, it was not lab leak, but might they change their assessment if they get this new information? 
that, I think, is key for the president's leadership to get these agencies together, to tell them they need to share the relevant intelligence, and that there needs to be a consensus recommendation. China is calling uh, the U.S. Uh, Energy Department's new assessment a political smear. Um, do you think this could lead to even tenser relations between China and the U.S.? The tensions are already rising uh, amid the, the Chinese spy balloon and China talking about maybe arming the Russians. Well, here's why that's not very credible from China. They are holding in secret all the information. They have refused to cooperate with the World Health Organization. They've refused to give access to their scientists. So if they were more transparent, they'd have a leg to stand on. But given how close they've been, uh, they have no right to accuse the United States of propaganda. Do you have concerns that the politics around the origins of COVID complicate the ability of scientists to to communicate openly? Does this make us more vulnerable in in a future pandemic uh, if people can't even offer a hypothesis without people jumping on them? It does. And this is why I think we need a very nuanced, thoughtful policy towards China. On the one hand, making sure we're beefing up the defense in Taiwan to prevent a military invasion, making sure they don't have surveillance of the United States, making sure we're rebalancing the trade deficit, but at the same time engaging and trying to make some progress on public health, on transparency, because ultimately the pandemic that took 7 million lives doesn't know borders. Exactly. Democratic Congressman Ro Khan of California, thank you so much. Always good to see you, sir. Thank you, Jake. Coming up, Fox in the courthouse, damning new filings in the Dominion voting system lawsuit. That's next. New filings from the lawsuit from Dominion against Fox show that CEO Rupert Murdoch acknowledged that many Fox News hosts endorsed the false stolen election claim. CNN's Oliver Darcy joins us now. Oliver, what specifically uh, is Murdoch shown saying in these new filings? That's right, Jake. Murdoch is seen in a deposition being grilled uh, by Dominion in in these new filings, uh, a transcript which reveals that he agreed that some Fox hosts like Sean Hannity, like Lou Dobbs, like Maria Bartiromo, that they endorsed claims that the election was stolen. He, he rejects the idea that Fox endorsed those claims, but he concedes that some host, and, and he says acting like commentators, endorsed those claims. Claims that he also acknowledges, according to this new legal filing, which was just uh, released to the public in the docket uh, a few moments ago, that he called BS and damaging. That's how he was referring to, Rupert Murdoch was referring to uh, some of the claims that Donald Trump was uh, promoting uh, after the 2020 election, after he lost that election. So these 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 uh, new documents, these this new revelations, uh, they add to the you know mountain of evidence that shows that behind the scenes, uh, people like Murdoch, they knew the election was not stolen, but they were um, seemingly okay or or allowed their their employees to go on air and to push to push these falsehoods. Yeah, I think Janine Pirro was named in this as well. Oliver Darcy, thanks so much. Appreciate it. With us now, CNN senior political analyst and USA Today columnist Kirsten Powers and CNN political commentator David Urban, a Republican strategist and former Trump campaign advisor. Uh, Kirsten, how significant do you think it is that Murdoch is acknowledging in this deposition uh, that hosts on his network, um, Lou Dobbs, uh, Janine Pirro, Maria Bartiromo, and Sean Hannity a bit, uh, we're putting out there these false claims that the election was stolen. 
Well, I think it's extremely significant. And, you know, he was put under oath, so he had to tell the truth. And it's not shocking to learn uh, that they knew that this was a, a conspiracy theory and that there wasn't any truth to it. I, I really don't think it's possible. And I say this as somebody who worked there. I mean, it was seven years ago. It was a different place. But I think at this point, I don't think you can be too cynical <laughs> when looking at this and, and assuming pretty much the worst. And I, to me, it was always obvious that they knew that what they were saying wasn't true. And had this lawsuit not come about, there wouldn't have been any way to prove it because the people needed to be put under oath. And David, uh, Fox viewers heard these false claims night after night after night. And Murdoch, apparently, according to Oliver, said it was damaging. What was it damaging, though? <laughs> right. It was dam- you know what was damaging? Their, 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 their brand, their price, how much, how much the company, how much Fox was valued at, right? That's what was damaging. Not, they weren't concerned about damaging the, the body republic. They were concerned about damaging corporate profits. And that's what I think is the most troubling. Um, you know, and and what, what Fox viewers and what people don't understand is there's the difference between hard news and, uh, and the, the entertainment it is, uh, you know, uh, 7 p.m. on on Fox News, right? Hannity and Tucker and those shows, which are purely they're the they're the news equivalent of the WWE. So um, let's that's move. not what the viewers think. Though. Uh, I, I know, Kristen, say, Kristen, that's what I said. I yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Kristen. Yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah, no, I was going to say that that is something Fox always says, but the viewers don't make any distinction. They, if you were to ask them, they would say these are the only people that we can trust. <laughs> um, and they they do view it as the news and they don't think that the pe- they trust them. They don't think that they're lying to them. David, uh, moving on uh, to the Republican National Committee uh, requirement uh, that every candidate who wants to participate in RNC sanctions debates needs to sign a loyalty pledge so they will promise to support uh, whoever the party's nominee ultimately is. Uh, listen to RNC chair uh, Ronna Romney McDaniel uh, talking to Dana Bash on CNN yesterday. I think they're all going to sign it. I really do. I think the voters are very intent on winning and they do not want to see a debate stage of people saying, I'm not going to support this guy. I'm not going to support this guy. What they need to say is, I'm going to do everything I can to defeat Joe Biden. And that means supporting the nominee of the Republican Party. You can't see a scenario where Donald Trump would just skip the debate if he's forced to sign something saying I, I support think others. I don't want to be on the debate stage. I think President Trump would like to be on the debate stage. That's what he likes to do. And I expect they'll all be there. What do you think, David? Do you think Donald Trump would skip a, deba- a debate to uh, avoid a loyalty pledge? No, no, Jake. But I, I think the question is, so what if he signs the debate pledge, he signs the pledge and then later decides not to honor it? Right. What's the right, that, that, that's that's the question. Right. No, that's that's a much more realistic scenario. Uh, and Kirsten, I mean, the other the downside to this loyalty oath is you have people out there like Governor Asa Hutchinson, former governor of Arkansas, saying that yeah. he thinks what Donald Trump did was, you know, very on January 6th was very damaging to the United States. He doesn't want to have to promise that he's going to support somebody that he thinks is very damaging to the United States. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think he sees him as a danger to democracy. So, uh, look, I think this is very much targeted at Donald Trump, uh, who the Republicans don't want to, you know, burn the Republican Party down uh, if if he goes down. But it's it's like it's delusional (laughs) to think that you can stop Donald Trump from doing anything. I think that if he wants to be on the stage, he'll just say whatever he has to say and then he'll do what he wants to do. I just don't know where 
these Republicans have been, that they think that he's, I think she was even saying, you know, we need people to put the party above their personal interests. I mean, have you met Donald Trump? <laughs> I, I, I don't know what what they're thinking. He's, yeah, he's and, just going to do what's best for him. And, and, and uh, Ronna, uh, um, McDaniel also said, David, that, you know, that ultimately the, the candidates on the states need to respect the will of the people when it comes to the Republican primary process. What about the will of the American people? What about the will of the people who voted for Joe Biden that the RNC, Donald Trump and so many of the people on Capitol Hill, Republicans wouldn't respect that? Why should yeah. Republican voters will of the people matter, but the general American people not? Yeah, you know, Jake, I, I think that's why, as you alluded to, Asa Hutchinson and others are running and they, they don't want to they, they don't want to you know, sign a pledge that they're not going to want to support either. Right. They they the reason they're running is because they believe that that uh, former President Trump isn't suited to, to hold the office any further. And they don't want to sign the pledge because they don't want to be forced into supporting somebody they don't want to. So it's a real it's a real quandary. And I'm not sure that uh, that the uh, RNC gets anything out by by raising it. I'd like to have them have a pledge that whoever wins the nomination respects the will of the people in the general election, not just the primary process. But I guess that's a bridge too far. Um, uh, Kirsten, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is on the short list of uh, potential 2024 candidates invited to a major donor retreat by the the Club for Growth. Not on that list is Donald Trump. Um, What do you make of it? Well, they're they're not really fans of Donald Trump. They weren't, uh, you know, last time he ran, they eventually came around, but they, they certainly weren't super supportive of him. And they, you know, they're sort of part of the group of people that are looking for the anti-Trump. And, uh, you know, and certainly, I guess they're looking at Ron DeSantis. It's kind of interesting because, of course, Club for Growth is known for limited government and what uh, Ron DeSantis has been doing with Disney. Um, you know, I'm, I'm never, you're never going to hear me feeling sorry for a big corporation, but it's certainly the opposite of limited government. I mean, it's, it's basically the government interfering with this company. And Mike Pence has, has, you know, criticized that from the right, basically saying that's not conservative government. Um, so I think that they're just probably looking for somebody who can stop Trump. And David, um, what Kirsten's obviously referring to for our viewers watching is, is DeSantis today essentially crowned himself king of the Magic Kingdom today and resorts um, because uh, he's signing a bill that takes away Disney's special district that it had there. Uh, and it seems to be a response to Disney disagreeing and perhaps even mischaracterizing some of DeSantis's uh, proposals and legislation. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, look, I, it's politically, it's a winner, right, for the governor in terms of uh, you know, you battle with me, I'm going to take you down. In, in Florida, right, it's obviously, it's politically popular there as well. So I, I don't think in, in terms of the politics, the raw Republican primary politics of it, you know, it's, it's a winning issue for him. And he's going to, you know, continue to kind of fight on those things like, as Kirsten alludes to, um, you know, that, that may not be, you know, the, the, in terms of limited government, um, you'd say, well, we should stay out of those types of fights. You should, the government should be involved and should be less intrusive, not more intrusive, but in these instances, I think that DeSantis is saying, like, you know, I'm going to if you want to invest in ESG stocks, we're not going to let you put your money in there, whether it's, you know, uh, whether it's a state or maybe they have, you know, there's movements now to do it at a local level in Florida and to get involved in, in lots of things where government traditionally hasn't been involved. 
All right, David Urban and Kirsten Powers, thanks to both. You really appreciate it. One man who has a lot to say about the 2024 race is Bill Maher. I sat down with the host of HBO's Real Time, the comedian and political commentator for a CNN primetime interview. We talked about everything from presidential politics to so-called cancel culture. Be sure to tune in to my exclusive interview with Bill Maher tomorrow night, 9 p.m., only on CNN. Just in the major development in the court in the Alec Murdoch trial down in South Carolina, we're going to go live to the courthouse next. In our national lead, just a short time ago, the defense rested in the murder trial of disgraced South Carolina attorney Alec Murdoch. He's accused, of course, of killing his wife and younger son. It's something that Murdoch has repeatedly denied on the witness stand last Um, week, although he admitted to lots of other things, including lying to investigators and stealing money from his law firm's clients. CNN's Diane Gallagher is outside the courthouse for us in Walterboro, South Carolina. Who was on the witness stand today, Diana, and what's next? Well, Jake, let's talk about what happened today first. The defense resting its case this hour uh, in, a, in a trial that really was supposed to take three weeks. We're double that amount of time at this point. They closed out with three different witnesses, the final being the younger brother of Alec Murdoch, John Marvin Murdoch. And uh, they obviously use this as a humanizing effort where he talked about the pain that his family has been through. But he also discussed the days after uh, the murders, talking about those interrogations. Interrogations that his brother and that the family went through, interviews they did. And he did something we've seen defense witnesses do, a theme here of painting a messy and incomplete investigation and crime scene response. He talked about finding, uh, in his words, pieces, what's left of Paul, who of course was shot and killed along with his mother, Maggie Murdoch, uh, back on June 7, 2021. That is testimony that we have heard from other witnesses who were there at the crime scene uh, who noted that it wasn't fully secured. Uh, But we also heard from these two expert witnesses that the defense brought on, one a pathologist and the other a crime scene expert. While they tried to refute testimony that we'd heard from state witnesses and law enforcement witnesses earlier during the trial about how they may have been killed, the direction of the bullets and the shots that may have been shot at them, as well as something that has been, again, a bit of a theme here from the defense, the fact that there was maybe more than one shooter. More probably than not, whether there was one or two shooters who murdered Maggie and Paul on the night of June 7th. I did have an opinion on that. And what's your opinion? Uh, My opinion is the totality of the evidence is more suggestive of a two-shooter scenario. Now, again, the state has tried to refute this. The state saying, of course, that Alec Murdoch was the one and only shooter. He has uh, maintained his innocence throughout this. But, uh, look, we are expecting now that the defense has arrested uh, the prosecutor saying that they expect to call uh, between four and five witnesses tomorrow for its reply. I will tell you that. At the beginning of the day, they said they were only calling two witnesses before court came in. So that expanded through the testimony of these experts and, of course, the brother of Alec Murdoch, Jake. Uh, After that, uh, the judge has said that we can then move on to those closing arguments. Again, this trial is double what they anticipated it being. Uh, The prosecution says he thinks he can get through all of the witnesses tomorrow, but we'll be very honest, they've not been great about uh, expecting and and predicting their time in this trial. And, And Diane, the judge today agreed to let the jury visit the actual scene of the murders? Yes, and that's going to happen 
after the prosecution finishes its rebuttal phase with those witnesses, uh, the judge granting the defense's request that the jury visit Moselle. That's the property where uh, both Maggie and Paul Murdoch were murdered, that Murdoch family property. And Jake, something really interesting that we learned here from them was that uh, the defense said they needed security to make sure the scene was secured because there had been people over the weekend who had gone to this murder scene and were taking selfies. Uh, just another example of kind of this true crime fascination that's evolved around this case here, asking for security for the jury during that trip. All right, fascinating. Diane Gallagher in South Carolina, thanks so much. In our national lead, a Los Angeles County prosecutor says he's been suspended for using the wrong pronouns to describe a defendant convicted of sexually assaulting a minor. In 2014, Hannah Tubbs, a transgender woman then 17 years old, sexually assaulted a 10-year-old girl. The charges were not brought until 2020, when Tubbs was 26 years old. Shea Sana was the prosecutor assigned to the case and argued that Tubbs should be tried as an adult. But the district attorney, George Gascon, had a policy barring juvenile defendants from being transferred to adult court. Instead, Tubbs was sentenced to two years in a juvenile facility. Now, Santa publicly, publicly criticized the DA, his boss, as being soft on crime. And now Santa has been suspended. He says it's retaliation for having referred to Tubbs as a he and by using her former name. Santa says the courts are being played by Tubbs, who is trying to use gender identity misleadingly to get into a female facility. CNN's Josh Campbell joins us. And Josh, Santa claims this is Gascon's office retaliating. Does he have a, a case to make there? Well, he lays out several compelling facts, Jake. I talked to Santa. And just to walk you through this very complex case, he says that this began when he was made aware of jailhouse recordings of this suspect, now known as Hannah Tubbs, who was convicted of assaulting a child and now stands accused of murder. That defendant allegedly spoke to her father on the phone, indicating that if she pretended to be transgender, she would be afforded better living conditions in jail. Now, we've reached out to Tubbs' attorney for comment on those allegations. Santa says that he brought this to the attention of senior attorneys in the office of L.A. District Attorney George Gascon, but they not only ignored those complaints, but just suspended him for five days without pay for not referring to the, the defendant by her self-identified gender, uh, gender. Now, Santa was also outraged over this blanket policy then in place by Gascon, which indicated that minors would not be tried as adults. And at the time of the assault, Tubbs was just shy of her 18th birthday, now in her mid-20s. And what concerned Santa was he told me that he was uh, concerned that sending a convicted sexual predator into juvenile detention would put those other kids at risk. Now, on Santa's suspension, the district attorney's office told us in a statement that they don't comment on personnel matters, but I'll read you part of that statement. They say the actions taken by the department were the result of the findings conducted by an independent county policy of equity investigation. The transgender community is frequently the target of violent attacks. They're also reluctant to come forward and report their attacks because of how they're treated in the criminal legal system. Now, this network, Jake, obviously, has reported on violence against the transgender community. Certainly members of the community have been subjected to violent attacks. So the threat is real. But this case raises serious questions about whether a prosecutor was retaliated against for sounding the alarm over someone allegedly trying to gain the system. Now, uh, just to get some reaction and understanding, I spoke with officials at Equality California. That's the state's largest LGBTQ plus advocacy organization. I didn't talk to them about this specific case, but in general, what the response should be if you have 
have an inmate who's pretending to be transgender. They told me in a statement, I'll read you part of it. Equality California believes that all incarcerated people, including those who are transgender, must be treated with fairness, dignity, and respect in a gender-affirming environment. Any bad actors who have pretended to be a different gender for better conditions should not jeopardize the safety of trans people who have thought about their gender identity for most of their lives and have followed a self-identifying authentic path. Now, as far as what happens next, Jake Jake Santa told me that he believes that in this retaliation here, that he believes that the DA's office is building an administrative case against him to eventually seek his dismissal, Jake. But it sounds like uh, Santa is, is, if you listen to that statement you just read from the the, um, uh, advocacy group, he thinks it's a bad actor. He thinks Tubbs is a bad actor, that that's the situation. There's also this greater context here, Josh. We're seeing uh, backlash uh, from Democrats or people who work for Democrats claiming that prosecutors are, are soft on crime, um, whether Washington, D.C. or St. Louis, uh, all over the place. No, that's right. And, you know, although we've seen Republicans try to broad brush Democrats as soft on crime, it's clear uh, that Democrats are not a monolith. We've seen several cases of progressives criticizing other uh, progressives. We've seen that here in Los Angeles with George Gascon. We saw that, of course, in San Francisco, where the district attorney, Cheza Bodine, was recalled and kicked out of office in an area that's overwhelmingly Democratic. So it's interesting to watch this debate play out often in public about uh, how Democrats should approach crime, Jake. Yeah, and a Democratic congresswoman was on the show last week talking about how the, the man that attacked her here in D.C. Uh, had, you know, he was a, a repeat offender who shouldn't have been walking the streets. Josh Campbell, yep. thanks so much. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. You bet. Our Earth Matters series takes us to the Utah desert. CNN's Bill Weir visited a town called St. George in Washington County, Utah. It's among the fastest growing places in the United States, and it is running out of water. In a bright red county, in a state allergic to government regulations, it is against the law to plant new grass around your business. Only about 8% of a home's landscaping can include lawn. And if you want to start an endeavor that guzzles a lot of water, you are free to look somewhere else. If somebody wanted to come and build a golf course today, I don't know where they would get the water from. And I'm telling you, I know where every drop of water is. Zach Renstrom is in charge of the water of Washington County, Utah, which holds the fastest growing metro area in the nation in a region that's suffering the worst mega drought in 1,200 years. We like our independence. We like our freedoms. We do not like government regulation. But that combo of a lot more people and a lot less water has forced some of the toughest water laws in the nation. We're developing plans that basically say during a drought situation that there can be absolutely no outside watering for any type of anything, even for like trees. We also talked about cutting off our construction water. And and I know that's like, oh, well, what, what's the big deal with construction water? But if, if we stop construction water, that act alone would lay off about 20% of our county. So like a lot of folks around here, He's counting on Utah to build an estimated $2.2 billion pipeline to pump water from Lake Powell across 140 miles of desert and into this Washington County reservoir. A hugely controversial idea passed by state lawmakers 17 years ago. But when the Trump administration tried to fast-track the environmental review, the six other states that depend on the Colorado River system took a rare step of banding together to stop it. 
the system is crashing. To be honest, it's kind of uncomprehendable to think of a diversion of that size that would serve 200,000 people in one county in southern Utah at this moment in time. There's just not the water. For environmental advocates like Matt Rice of American Rivers, developing with a pipeline mentality makes less sense now than ever. We're in a place where everybody across the board, lower basin, upper basin, agriculture, municipalities, we have to be laser focused on doing more with less water because that's that's our future, that is our reality. One of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth is how I describe it. It's like living in a national park. Chris Hart is the mayor of Ivins, a town of 10 grand that's growing just as fast as the rest of Washington County. As you look at our, at our new city hall, mm-hmm. The landscaping around this building requires no water. It's beautiful, too. We, we don't irrigate. And it fits. It fits the landscape, Yeah, it's, right? I mean, it's exactly what a desert landscape ought to look like. You got some attention. In uh, just a community meeting, calling it the Lake Powell Pipe Dream. Um, Shame on me. No, but it, it, I guess it, it, feel, it felt like a candid moment there. I actually use that word tongue-in-cheek because... The serious side of it is that it is an essential part of our plan. I think from uh, our perspective from the state of Utah is we're entitled to, that, to our share when the acknowledgement of what's happening with climate change and, and the reduction of flow, whatever that translates into, we'll live within that. We're looking at a situation here that resembles, on a much smaller scale, what happened in California and Arizona and, and Las Vegas. They've had their enormous growth spurts through the years, and the water has been made available for them to do that. And now here we are, Utah, little old Utah. <laughs> but in the meantime, thanks to the new Infrastructure Bill and Inflation Reduction Act, there are billions of federal dollars for towns like Ivan's to take water reclamation to the next level. And like Las Vegas, capture, treat, and recycle every drop possible. So. The few drops of rain that we get, if we, if we can use them four or five times, yeah. that's a whole different thing than the drop of rain comes, you use it, and off it, off it goes cool. down the river. But he knows better than most, living through climate change in the West means living with a culture change around water. Bill Weir, CNN, St. George, Utah. And our thanks to Bill Weir for that report. Our coverage continues next with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.